I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some of the questions I return to are, how are citations used? Whose interpretations matter? Who is a reader? And what are the possible tensions between reader, author, and text? My guest today is Victor Ray, who is a F. Wendell Miller Associate Professor in the Departments of Sociology and Criminology in African Studies at the University of Iowa. He is also a 2021-2022 Senior Non-Resident Fellow at the Brookings Institution. His research applies critical race theory to classic sociological questions. His work has been published in the American Sociological Review, American Behavioral Scientists, Annals of the American Academy of Political and Social Science, and other journals. He is also an active public scholar, publishing commentary in outlets such as the Washington Post, Harvard Business Review, and the Boston Review. Ray's work has been funded by the Ford Foundation and the National Science Foundation. Victor, I want to tell you um, that I think it's a bit surreal for me to actually talk to you because um, I cite your work, The Racialized Organizations, in the opening chapter of my dissertation. In fact, I would like to begin with your column, Conditionally Accepted. Is Are you still writing that? or? I was editor of Conditionally Accepted mm-hmm. for two years. Uh, it was started by my colleague, Eric Roman, as a blog, and then it got picked up by Inside Higher Ed. I did that for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved it. I, I think one of the great things about doing that column was, one, Inside Higher Ed has a national and somewhat of a international kind of reach, but also I got to meet and converse with and edit and learn about uh, a much broader swath of higher ed than I would just as a sociologist not doing that kind of public work. I got to edit like physicists and people doing uh, disciplines like far, far afield of sociology, but no, I'm no longer editing it. Well, specifically, I was interested in the piece, The Racial Politics of Citation. I'm teaching a class called Citations as Practice, and so I'm going to include that piece because I think it's it says a lot about this current moment and the, the kind of discourse that we're still seeing. Um, so in that piece, you argue that racial exclusion of Black and non-Black scholars shape any discipline. And in your conclusion, you predicted that an uncharitable interpretation of your suggestion that to cite relevant work by underrepresented scholars and for white or non-Blacks to engage in meaningfully could be that you're making a claim for affirmative action or that you're suggesting that citations are an objective measure of intellectual worth. So I see these very tensions in my own department right now in, in Germany when white scholars try to cite Black and Indigenous scholars particularly. Um, how does one prioritize these voices without essentializing or tokenizing them? Is positionality important now? And I asked that last question because um, I still hear a lot of white scholars, young junior white scholars, make these positionality claims before they present their work. And I'm not sure uh, what that positionality, means Positionality in terms of this is their racial and ethnic background. And so that- They'll say something like, um, you know, I have my limitations as a white scholar when I'm um, going to talk about my study involving disabled subjects or, or you know, people who may not be in, in their immediate community. Okay. 
So I think I'll say a couple of things. One is that, so I was drawing on a, a classic of critical race theory when I wrote that, Elgato's uh, The Imperial Scholar, in which he examines uh, law review articles. And he showed at the time that the majority of folks writing about civil rights law were white scholars. And, you know, he talked about what that meant for the kind of knowledge they were building around civil rights law. And he, he said some things about how he thought it might be different if more scholars of color were incorporated into that body of literature. I don't think, you know, the uncharitable sort of interpretation as I'm calling for affirmative action is, um, I think, not the case. I think if you yeah. look at the, the comments on that piece, I think someone said that is what I was doing. I, I sort of anticipated that. But I would also say that um, what I'm saying is that actually real empiricism requires a broad swath of perspectives and the situated, you know, that everyone's positionality, white scholars, black scholars, everyone's positionality is limited. And that the body of civil rights law that he was critiquing, uh, the body of sociology, so there's a long tradition in sociology of scholars sort of pathologizing what folks have called the underclass and, you know, or pathologizing work based on like the Moynihan report about the, the structure of the Black family uh, that pathologizes and that other voices can push back against. And I would say neither one has sort of a necessarily a lock on truth because of their positionality. But I am a firm believer that, you know, more positions, more voices can get us closer to what's actually happening. And so I think the lack of incorporation creates an, an epistemological problem around the knowledge that we uh, consume and what we take for fact or what we take for empirical knowledge. In the same piece, you talk about peer review mm -hmm. <laughs> and how it reproduces white structures. And like I had told you offline, I was talking about my colloquium and it's set up to be that we circulate a paper that we're working on and then everyone around the room goes and gives a comment on it, you know? Um, so I, I frequently hear and about my own work and maybe sometimes when my partner's teaching Black or Indigenous scholars in his classes that usually it's a white student body will say that they don't understand someone's writing because there's a lot of references that they may not understand. Those comments are very much about intelligibility. My question, I'm trying to grapple with this myself. When you have students who, when they say that out of either um, like unwillful ignorance or deliberate ignorance, how do you engage with a student who shows that kind of limitations of understanding, even in this kind of particular time period that we're living in, how do you deal with these types of comments that veer into epistemic ignorance? Or how would you advise white scholars to talk about how do we treat texts written by Black and non-white scholars with care and with dignity? Epistemic ignorance. I think I'll start with that. I think this is a particular problem for race scholars. I, I don't know how much I've written about it, but one thing I think a lot about in the U.S. is that 
everyone thinks they can talk about race. Mm -hmm. um, and so you will hear people who like, it's clear it's the first time they've ever thought about this, right? And they know very little about sort of the racial wealth gap or discrimination in hiring or differences in life expectancy between racial groups and or redlining, you know, the, the long, deep history of racial subordination in the United States. Um, and yet they feel free to sort of pontificate on what is best or policy or, you know, if we think about sort of the panic around critical race theory right now, that's mm -hmm. happening really in the absence of any actual knowledge from many yeah. of the people who are panicked about the history of the body of thought, what it means, how you can apply it, why it arose, sort of the history of pre-thinkers to critical race theory, who were sometimes actually much more critical than what's come to be critical race theory as it stands right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a number of things that you can do. One is I often expect it, right? So uh, I want to be clear here. Yeah, yeah. There's a difference between like, I'm not surprised, but also like remaining disappointed. Right. Yeah. So oftentimes on social media, you'll hear people be like, I'm not surprised. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not surprised either. This is still a profound yeah. tragedy. Yeah. Right. Like this is still terrible. And so I expect it like what expecting it allows you to do is sort of be prepared with a retort mm -hmm. or be prepared with some kind of remark. Because if, for me, if you're not prepared, um, like it hurts more <laughs> in some ways. Not that it doesn't necessarily, you know, still do harm if you're prepared, but at least you kind of understand the situation a little better. The other thing that, at least in my classes, there, what I do is I'm like, where's your evidence, right? So, I mean, sociology is an empirical social science. And yeah, I do theory, but my theory draws heavily on empirical work. And so when people are like, well, I don't think organizational hierarchies are, you know, racial structures. I'm like, I mean, organization <laughs> in the United States, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. there may be very few and even those few often kind of prove the rule because folks have been excluded from mainstream organizations, mm -hmm. have built sort of secondary organizations, that, right, from that exclusion. And those organizations often remain heavily underfunded, heavily surveilled by the police and the state. I often point to like, what is the empirical evidence, right? You mentioned Charles Mills earlier. I think a lot about Charles Mills' work on ignorance. And, you know, when he talks about ignorance about around race being something like, you know, one of the most common sort of cognitive problems of the last several hundred years. I just think of that often, right? Like ignorance about race um, is, is, he calls it, what does he say? So he's like, think about an ignorance that fights back, <laughs> right? Think about an active ignorance. And a lot of conversations I hear about race, I just think, yeah, there's that active ignorance, right? There's people committed to not knowing as a protection of their identity, as a protection of their wealth, as a protection of their ideas around vaccine safety. But there's a whole host of ways in which that can play out. I guess I'll say one last thing. This does often come up in peer review. Um, I think very specifically about an article I wrote um, 
in which I had mentioned the race of, you know, a number of people of color. And one of the reviewers was like, well, why are you mentioning their race? I wasn't doing necessarily an analysis of what their race meant in the section. And they're like, obviously their race is irrelevant. And so you should just not mention their race. And my response to that was like, so if I don't mention their race, then it becomes sort of the unstated universal white. White, yeah. And also people of color have as much right to universal experience as anyone else, right? People of color's experiences are just as universal as the sort of unmarked white category that's often placed as the universal human experience. I think there are ways to deal with it through, you know, citing literature or citing empirical research. I always consider citations as part of an empirical project, and I'm so glad that you brought up what counts in empiricism. I'm interested in what you were just referring to as um, empirical evidence in sociology. Um, Have you had pushback about your work because you intersect sociology with critical race theory and have people told you that you're not actually doing social science? I mean, people say all sorts of things. (laughs) Um, Like, I, I... I'm a social theorist, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Uh, so I draw on empirical work. I've done some empirical work. That article is in the American Sociological Review. Uh, and so I think people are like, yeah, this is sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, critical race theory has an interesting relationship with sociology in the sense that it's not sociology. They come from very different mm-hmm. sort of intellectual traditions. But I think... One important thing about critical race theory is, you know, there are certain sort of testable hypotheses that you can look to empirical work to show. And so one of those hypotheses is, you know, uh, race and racism are much more enduring than sort of the American myth of progress. And if you look at empirical work in sociology, I would argue it is broadly congruent with that tenet of critical race theory, right? There are people who would disagree with me in fairness to them, right? There are Mm -hmm. people who would say, well, racial attitudes show that, you know, people are no longer opposed to interracial marriage. And I would say, well, look at the actual rates, right? Mm -hmm. They're still incredibly low. Yes, they've ticked up quite a, a, a little bit, uh, people say they wouldn't mind if they had a black neighbor and then like, well, look at our cities, right? They remain as segregated or look at our elementary schools. Yeah. They are more segregated than they were before Brown v. Board. If you look at sort of my bio, I often say I draw on ideas from critical race theory rather mm-hmm. than saying I am a critical race theorist mm-hmm. because I recognize like I'm not a lawyer. I'm not necessarily talking about how race is embedded in the law, but I am talking about how race is embedded in social structures and racism is embedded in social structures. And that is also, you know, an idea from critical race theory, but I would say it's an idea that you can find in a lot of disciplines, right? Mm -hmm. And you can find it in history, you can find it in sociology. I would say Charles Mill's work makes a very similar argument in, in philosophy, right? You can see a clear structure, both, you know, he would say epistemologically and in actual empirically of what sort of the history of epistemological apartheid has created in mm-hmm. different fields. And so that is the tradition I see myself working in. And 
because we're still talking about your citations piece and Sarah Med is someone too that I read a lot and I like to put your your citational piece with some of her work on citation practices. In her introduction of Living a Feminist Life, she said that we should just all together stop citing white men. Um, and that particular passage is very famous and I see it reproduced. I've, I've used it in my own work many times. What, what are your thoughts on her provocation? I think that there's a similar point you're making in your piece that I read that was published by the Sociological Forum, which is titled Reproducing Inequality in Sociology. The obvious argument you're making is that if sociologists are truly concerned with studying, analyzing, and writing about inequalities in our social worlds, they should just begin in their own department and see how whiteness prevails. Could the problem of citations be a simple reflection of the department and departmental committees and structures? And were you ever questioned about your own citational practices when you're going through graduate school? Yes. Oh, I I'm asking rhetorical questions. But. I was. So yeah, that's, I mean, maybe that's a conversation for a different day. Let me start by saying, I think that sociology departments, I don't know how other departments work, but it's pretty individual work in the sense that we might collaborate, but mm -hmm. like, I don't often know who my colleagues are engaging with or citing unless I see them give a talk or unless I read one of their articles. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think that this is a is necessarily at the department level. I think it's, you know, in the construction of the sociological canon. I think it happens a lot in peer review. So to, to get to the, the question about Sarah Ahmed and saying we should just not cite uh, white men, uh, one, that would probably not lie in the kinds of journals trying to publish in. Um, two, even if it did, I'll say this. I think often a lot, you hear writers say uh, they're thinking about their audience mm -hmm. when they write. Sometimes I'm doing that. I would say more often I'm thinking about who I want to be in conversation with. Right. So I don't necessarily see academic work as a battle royale. I see it as like a series of ongoing conversations. Mm -hmm. So I try and cite people who I think may have been left out of the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. And I hope in citing people who have been left out of the conversation, it enriches the whole conversation, right? It provides a better picture of social reality, or my word, provides a better picture of how I think organizations work, right, yeah. to reproduce certain kinds of racial inequality. And mm -hmm. um, I think, by and large, there are important exceptions, and I, I cite them, but by and large, some classic important theorists who were white men in sociology didn't necessarily examine race. And so mm -hmm. I think the best way to remedy that is say, like, here's what they did, not necessarily knocking what they did, but here's how what they did could be made richer and have more explanatory power if we think about what these scholars, you know, Mills, Crenshaw, mm -hmm. these, these race scholars say about similar kinds of social processes. Mm -hmm. I think because Sarah Med is used pretty interdisciplinarily that um, I think a lot of her ideals come through that kind of thought process and trajectory. I don't think yeah. the idea of a canon in a department, because uh, unlike um, your training as a sociologist and even my partner as a philosopher, I've only ever been in kind of these so-called interdisciplinary spaces. 
you know? Mm. So like, I'm actually, okay. the expectation is that I am allowed to cite widely, but when it comes down to comps and stuff, it you actually understand that they actually had an expectation. They just didn't relay that expectation to you. So I'm always trying to understand how to be strategic, how much of the canon I have to read and then how much I want to read outside of the alleged canon. So. so this is an interesting question in that when I did my comps, I stuck very clearly to the canon mm-hmm. um, because I knew that comps were not where I was going to make sort of a contribution. I saw comps as a hurdle to get through yes. to get mm-hmm. the dissertation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew I was in a very mainstream department. I'm actually glad for a bunch of reasons that I was in a mainstream department, even though my advisor was very critical, but I stuck very clearly to the canon. And so one thing, you know, this is different at different stages of a career, mm-hmm. but I knew that there was a body of gatekeepers and I had to show that body of gatekeepers that I had the knowledge that they considered mm-hmm. worth opening the gate for, right? And so that's what I tried to do. Now for my own work, there's a different set of gatekeepers. I had someone my first year, I was complaining on Facebook about a peer review experience. And I had a, a professor from my undergrad write and say, actually, Victor, now you choose your own peers. And so if we think back to what I was just saying about like who I wanted to be in conversation with, Mm -hmm. I realized that, and then, you know, people told me that one of the things that journal editors do to figure out who should review your piece is go look at who you're citing. Mm -hmm. And then they have some idea of who you're in conversation with. And then when you do that, you realize that like, oh, your work is likely to get read by the people who are thinking along the same lines Mm -hmm. or similar things. And I would say in the revision process for my organization's article, that was very clear. Um, I'm glad you brought up, are we talking about a theory of racialized organizations, right? Is that the piece that you're referring to? Okay. So like I told you, that was the first piece of yours that I've ever read. And so it's hard for me not to look at like the spaces I'm in and think, racialized organization, you know, thinking like a sociologist. So there's there's another analytical project that you're doing based on my reading of that piece. You're trying to bridge the gaps between sociology and critical race theories. And I know that we've kind of touched upon that. That piece was published in 2019, even though it's had a long history of getting to the publishing point. Um, what has been the response to your work now that we've seen this immediate um, discourse on CRT and the pushback against CRT and it being banned in in schools in the United States and other parts of the world? I mean, overall, I've been happy with the response to my work. It's been cited a number of times and people are using the theory and folks outside of sociology are using it, which is really gratifying. But uh, I would say, yes, I am trying to bridge sociology and critical race studies. I'm not the only person doing that. There's a number of folks in sociology doing this kind of work. And I would say the response has been, well, I mean, what you would expect. Some people are unhappy about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people really like it. I feel like one of the things about being honest about the history of race scholarship 
in the U.S. and the history of race relations in the U.S. is that it's always been contested, mm-hmm. heavily politicized, and you know, sometimes heavily disrespected area. And I don't think I necessarily knew that going into graduate school, but I definitely knew it by the time I finished, right? I'll say this two ways. I'm happy that people made the space for me, intellectuals, scholars who came before me, um, who I cite and work I draw on, made the space for me to write this article. And I hope my work helps make space for other people. As far as the sort of national response to critical race theory, I think a lot of folks are rightly very worried. I think it's a kind of McCarthyism that is quite dangerous if we look at the history of these kinds of movements. Um, I think we've already seen folks having their classes canceled. Mm-hmm. We're already seeing people being fired or harassed over this. And as I said earlier, much of it is, and this is not even me, this is the people prosecuting this kind of um, McCarthyism saying, like, we are attempting to conflate a whole bunch of ideas that are or are not critical race theory mm-hmm. to sort of delegitimate the study of race and racism. So this is a massive kind of myth and disinformation campaign from folks who are, you know, clearly opposed to racial equality, racial progress. So, I mean, I'm worried about it. And I'm going to do my work. I mean, I'm going <laughs> to, and, and I hope other people do too, right? And just out of curiosity, for your classes in sociology, um, can you use CRT? Do you advertise it with saying like, we'll read theories coming from CRT? So, so I teach a class on race and ethnicity. I also mm-hmm. teach classes on critical race theory. Mm-hmm. I'm in Iowa. The way the law is written in Iowa is it's like, here are all these concepts. Um, I don't think anyone actually teaches any of the concepts that they have outlined in the law. Um, Some of them are like a profound misunderstanding of what critical race theory is. And then there's an exception, like you can discuss all of these in a course of regular study. This is my specialty area, right? (laughs) I, I can talk about these in my classroom. Um, But I would also say that's the way the law is written, Um, as a number of commenters have said, sort of the letter of the law and how people are interpreting it or choosing to interpret it is very different. So I expect not just for folks who like claim they're critical race theorists or claim to use ideas from critical race theory, Mm -hmm. but I expect folks broadly uh, who teach race and ethnicity in the fall are going to have a tough time. And they're going to have to think very carefully about the language they use and Mm -hmm. the work. I would say, uh, again, the empirical evidence is like, by far on the side that, you know, I don't think you can do an honest reading of US history and say that like race isn't a fundamental structure. Right. When I was coming up with a list of questions for our 
chat here. I listened to Brittany um, Packnett Cunningham's episode where, in, where she interviews Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw for her Undistracted mm-hmm. podcast. Early on, uh, Dr. Crenshaw said that CRT isn't actually being taught in kindergarten through 12th grade. So the uproar, she said, is just wrong. And many people who do use her concepts rightly, I guess, know that she's trying to say something about law and racial injustice. And one thing that she has been saying that sticks out to me, um, she keeps saying race is a fiction. I want to ask this this kind of word that I keep seeing, this socially constructed concept that everyone's been using. I see it used to mean different things, like it's not real, you know, like Kimmy Crenshaw is saying it's a fiction. But um, some people saying just because it's made up doesn't mean it's not real. So could you give us some clarification on this socially constructed concept, especially with regards to race? So money is made up. Yeah, it has very real effects, right? So money is a collective fiction. We hold a piece of paper. We agree it has a certain value Mm -hmm. of exchange. And we organize like nearly every part of our lives around some relation to Mm -hmm. that money, right? So that is a social construction. It Mm -hmm. is a social fiction, a collective hallucination that people uh, buy into to organize their world in certain ways, right? And so race is very similar. Race arose as the modern conception of race arose under slavery and colonialism to justify all manner of atrocity. Um, And it has continued to justify some atrocities in many ways, right? And there's a number of geneticists who argue that race is not a meaningful biological category. Um, Sociologists and anthropologists like Boaz and Du Bois in the early 20th century argued this, so this is not a new idea. Mm -hmm. However, the idea of biological race is very, very ingrained in sort of the mind of many folks in the United States. And critical race theory traces the construction of race and different racial categories through the law, right? Mm -hmm. So they look at things like uh, the one drop rule, which, you know, said one drop of black blood means you're African-American or black. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they, they look at that and then they'll look at states where they had varying levels of percentages, right? So you could cross state line and in one state, if you were one eighth black, you were considered black. If you cross the state line, if you were one thirty second, you were considered black, right? And those are arbitrary social distinctions that nonetheless had profound meaning about where you could live, who you could marry, what kind of jobs you could have, um, your life expectancy in some cases. So that's what social construction means. For me, it's always weird when people are like, well, it's meaningless, so we don't have to pay attention to it. Because, well, like, yeah, if we stop organizing our daily lives around racial categories in some ways, then we could stop paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. Until then, we need to learn how we've organized our lives in that way so we can interrupt that organization. I'll say this, I think there's two ways that question comes about. One out of sort of genuine curiosity or misunderstanding. Um, I did not understand 
what the social construction of race meant the first time I, I heard it. And then, you know, uh, through reading and learning more, I was like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Um, so that's the one way, right? There can be like sort of good faith misunderstanding or disagreement. Um, the second is, I think, a willful misunderstanding, right? Or a bad faith disagreement in which people say it's a social construction, so we don't have to pay attention to it in order to uphold certain kinds of inequality that benefits them mm -hmm. or, um, or to not have to deal with certain kinds of inequality that they don't want to think about. Mm -hmm. So I asked that question because... I'm in STS, and so we talk a lot about social construction. And it seems like there are two different ways, like you were saying, of using that concept. And I also want to bring up this word I keep seeing floating around Twitter, post-racial. Do you see that often? So I kind of saw that when like Obama was running for president and during his term. I haven't seen people talking about post-racial lately, okay. and I think... Uh, that might be just a response to Trump and the rising white supremacist movement. Mm -hmm. Is that like there are certain ways in which um, that illusion was shattered, except for people who have, uh, yeah, who, whose illusions won't be shattered, right? Except for people who are very, very invested in the idea that race doesn't matter, right? I never understand anything when people use the, the is it. Prefix post. I never understand it. I'm, and I'm reminded when Arundhati Roy said something like, "She's not sure what post-colonialism means because she's not sure if we've ever been past colonialism." And I always think of her when I'm reading these tweets saying, "Like we have to to be a just society, we have to be post-racial." I'm just not sure what that means. And then I also think about Charles W. Mills' piece: "Is it ideal theory as ideology?" Do you remember that piece? Is that the ideal that people do want? And if so, why? And what does post-racial mean to them? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I just, to me, it is a profoundly, it's profoundly dishonest term. Yeah. I agree. I also want to ask, since this kind of summer 2020 events, um, I've attended a lot of online webinars, conferences, where there are a lot of topics on Black studies or critical race theories, but it's very rare that I actually see a Black scholar or speaker give a talk in these spaces. So I'm wondering, and I see this in my own department as well, that they want to share their insights on CRT and they don't th immediately think about a particular community that may have already been doing the work. How can non-Black scholars engage with existing Black scholars and the Black community to have these conversations rather than just continue to take up space? Because I thought that we were in this pivotal moment where we're trying to make spaces, but I don't actually see that happening most of the time. And I wonder what your thoughts are and if you've seen these kind of um, empty gestures at inclusivity. I have seen empty gestures at inclusivity. Let me go back to my theory. One of the things I talk about in the theory is like, where are the resources? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a number of ways you can do this at, I'll talk about this sort of university level. One is make a list of 
speakers. So, you know, sometimes I get media requests. I have a list of like 25 folks that if I can't do it, I send them to, Mm -hmm. right? And it's scholars of color mostly, and it's folks with expertise in the area. I don't necessarily follow up, so I don't know if the reporters go ask those folks, but it's a way to think about it beforehand, right? Mm -hmm. This question, I've like written this on Twitter and got myself in trouble, but I, this question is always like a little weird to me coming from organizations Mm -hmm. because like they don't have this problem when they're hiring people or bringing (sighs) people who are part of the majority group. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Right? And so it's like, well, just do what you're already doing. Just broaden your circle. Like, what is the problem, right? Like, the question itself betrays a kind of epistemological ignorance that seems like not real. Like, just, I mean, just admit more people. Yeah, just I know, broaden, I know. Broaden your range of speakers, mm-hmm. right? Read, read more. Outside, read outside of like these yeah. 12 people. I don't mean to like bristle at the question, but I get that question a lot. And a lot of times I'm like, well, what are you t- like? <laughs> like, just do what you do. In reference to my Harvard Business Review piece. So after that piece came out, um, a few organizations, big organizations reached out and were like, what can we do? And then that's why I replied on Twitter because I was frustrated. I was like, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. Like, just redistribute, like you're, you run a company. <laughs> like, right? You have or more like, power than I do. <laughs> you have way more power and resources than me. Give me access to those resources and I'll use them. Okay. Um, so I had like two or three of these requests. I was polite in the request, but mm-hmm. then I was like frustrated. Like, why do people keep doing this? I mean, I guess in fairness, I'll say like some of those folks could have been thinking about this for the first time, mm-hmm. right? And, and they could have genuinely been trying to alleviate a problem. Yeah. Um, but from my perspective as someone who, who thinks about this all the time, mm-hmm. it was frustrating. I mean, because what that question asks is like, how do we stop discriminating? Yeah. Right. I mean, that's basically what that question Uh is saying is how do we stop discriminating? And it's like, well, figure out what the mechanisms are that are causing this discrimination and Mm -hmm. fix that. Right. So, your piece for the Harvard Business Review, Why So Many Organizations Stay White, I noticed that it was also published in 2019. And you had a piece, I think it was actually when you were writing your conditionally accepted, why you write for the public. Am I right? Did you have a piece? Okay. I also try to be mindful of how academics write in very dense theoretical language and then how pieces like your column um, could help strengthen the public understanding of really dense academic jargon. So why so many organizations say white reminded me of your theoretical piece. Did you write it with that piece in mind or how do you discern what could be written for public consumption versus your more academic articles? So I can tell you how that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, So the... American Sociological Review piece got accepted Mm -hmm. and uh, a colleague tweeted it out that it was accepted. 
And I was like, oh, no, why'd you do that? I wasn't going to announce it yet. And then he was like, I'll delete it. And I was like, leave it up because it's out now. And then Harvard Business Review contacted me the next day and said, do you want to write sort of a summary version or would you send it? So I sent them the piece and then they wrote back and said, do you want to write a sort of condensed version of it? Or, you know, translate some of the ideas. And so I wrote back to my friend and I was like, thank you for tweeting it, actually. That was awesome. I was wrong. I owe you. Uh So I didn't plan Uh to do that. Uh, I think it was one, it shows sort of the value of being on Twitter Uh or having, in that case, someone else promote my work on Twitter. The other thing I'll say is in the piece I wrote for Inside Higher Ed, I talked about sort of the Du Boisian tradition of public scholarship and public Mm -hmm. sociology, and I have always wanted to be part of that tradition. I think the stuff we do as intellectuals and as sociologists is too important to keep to ourselves. And I think, you know, for the kind of debates that are happening broadly right now around race and ethnicity in the United States, I think it's really important for people with scholarly backgrounds to lend their voices to those discussions. And I think also, as far as, you know, the American Sociological Review piece is pretty dense. One, I had a great editor at Harvard Business Review that helped Mm-hmm. you know, translate some of that. But two, I think not every idea can easily be translated. And I mm-hmm. recognize that. Uh, but it is important to try and do it where it can be done. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at anandroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.